y'all, we're starting a new series, I said it a minute ago, called, today called Creed. You know, what in the world is a creed? That word creed comes from the Latin word credo, and all credo means is, is I believe. And so in the language, it means I believe. In the language of the, of the church, a creed is really just a statement of, a, of belief. It's a statement of belief. What is it that we, as if you say that you are a Christ follower, if you say that you are a believer, what is it that we believe? And now the creed, there's lots of different creeds. Looking back at the history of the church, there's lots of different creeds that have existed, but the oldest and uh, oldest one and the one that is most commonly used across the church is called the Apostles' Creed. And legend has it that the Apostles' Creed was written by the Apostles. So it kind of makes sense, the Apostles' Creed, but it was not written by the Apostles. It came years later. It is called the Apostles' Creed, y'all, because it clearly and faithfully lays out what the Apostles taught. And the Apostles were the ones, they were the guys that were with Jesus 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. They walked with Him, they talked with Him, they sat around the campfire, they went hiking with Him, they jumped in the ocean and went swimming with Him, you know, for three years until His public ministry. So look, here's the deal. In the years following his Jesus crucifixion and his resurrection, and then in the years following the deaths of the eyewitnesses to those events, you had heresies, and heresies just false teaching. You had heresies popping up all over the place that Jesus wasn't God, that Jesus wasn't man, that he was 50-50, that he was 60-40, that he was 70-30, that he just looked like a man, but he was really a phantom that he was a ghost, that he was just a spirit, but he really didn't have any flesh. And then, oh, then the Holy Spirit was just a figment of everyone's imagination, that, that, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was like somehow this different God than the God of Peter and James and John and Andrew, like they were different. And so the, the folks coming up in that first century and the second century, they were trying to reel all that craziness in and get down to what it is, if you call yourself a Christian, a Christ follower, a believer, what does that mean? What does that mean that you believe? And so in these years, these 60 or so years following, uh, immediately following the resurrection, the New Testament is being written. And if we look and we read it carefully and closely, we'll, we'll find a lot of short little creedal statements, kind of little declarations, if you will, across the New Testament. And those, those statements were used in baptisms. They were used in, uh, in preaching. They were used in teaching. They were used in worship. Things like John chapter 20, verse 3. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And I'm going to just hit you with a bunch of different verses. And if you have a worship guide, you really, if you don't have one, you really need one today. So if you don't have one, if you can get your hand up, somebody will get one to you. But in, in the, the little fifth question, so to speak, in the table talk, I've listed all these verses out. And so I want you to go back and look at them because we don't have time to go through all of them. But I, want to get, I just want to tell you a few of them. Acts chapter 16 verse 31, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Philippians um, 2, 
10 and 11 and 1 Timothy 2.16, those are all focused on Jesus. They're all focused on Jesus. And then there are passages that speak about the Father and the Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 and verses 5 and 6. And then again in, in, in chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. And then finally, y'all, there's a group of passages that, like the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. And Ephesians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13. All of those speak to, of all three persons of the Trinity. And so all of this is coming from the text, coming from the Scripture. So then you have around the year 200 A.D., around that year, 200 A.D., when a person was being baptized, they answered a series of questions. And this was really to make sure that that person being baptized was a believer, that they knew um, what they believed. It doesn't mean that they had some seminary degree, but if they were being baptized, they needed to know in what name, what, why are they being baptized. And so they, the, the person doing the baptize, doing the baptizing would ask the person, the candidate they called them, this series of two or three questions to make sure that per- we do that. Look, I'm not going to baptize somebody that, that, that has not professed to be a Christian. And so we talk to that person. It's not an inquisition. We just tell us your story. That's really about what it amounts to. And so here's the way that went in, in the year two, around 200 A.D. The person doing it would say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the person would say, I believe. And then they would say, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, uh, and the Virgin Mary, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died and rose three days later, da-da-da-da-da. And the person would say, I believe. And then they would say, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Church, and the resurrection of the flesh? And the person would say, I believe. And then over time, there's nothing magical about this, but over time, those questions kind of morphed into a statement or a declaration. And for a time, the creed that originated from those questions that were asked, you know, in the second and third centuries, the the creed was called the Old Roman Creed. And then that Old Roman Creed was tweaked a little bit over time. And then the form that we see it now, the Apostles' Creed, dates from about the fifth century. And so there's the development of what was up on the screen a minute ago. And I want you to know that the creed, the Apostles' Creed, comes from the Scriptures. Y'all, there's 758,000 words in the Bible. There's about 31,102 verses, excuse me, uh, yeah, verses in the Bible. And if all of those 31,000 verses kind of paint one big picture, which they do, the unity in the Scriptures is amazing. And so it paints the... The entirety of the Bible, written over a few thousand years by 30 or 40 different writers, it, there's a unity in there. And so if there's this, this, this one unified kind of story that is painted, then it kind of makes sense to whittle that down into a manageable set of statements that convey what it is, briefly, that we believe as a Christian. And so the purpose of the Apostles' Creed never was to to replace the scripture it is to support the scripture and it is to protect the church from heresy from false teaching and so i want us to read it together somebody this morning said hey we're not like a catholic church now no we're not a catholic church the apostles creed is simply this statement of what we believe as a christ follower and so i want us to read it 
I want us to read it together. And I know we're just starting this series out, but y'all, this creed is in the bullseye of what it means to say I'm a Christian. So I want us to read it together. On the count of three, you ready? One, two, three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life ever everlasting. Amen. That word Catholic, don't freak out, it's got a little C. I think on the screen it was for everything was probably capital letters. But it's a little C Catholic, that's the universal church. That's the body of believers for all time. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to walk through these 108 words and make sure that all of us know, and I mean really know what it means if we say that we're a Christian. And I feel compelled this morning, kind of as a bit of an introduction to this series, to speak, even if it's briefly, to, to the triune nature of, of our God, to the whole idea of the Trinity. Um, and, and I want to say this right up front that my words will be inadequate because there is a huge massive difficulty that presents itself when we try to describe the indescribable and so I'm asking y'all up front as we walk through this to 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 just have grace as as we're attempting to describe God with human words and I'm gonna be honest with you it scares me to even do this this attempt to, to paint a picture of God, this God who spoke everything into existence. And he breathed very life into man to try to craft an image of him with human words. And so it really does scare me because I don't want to lead you into false teaching. I don't want to lead you into a false understanding of who God is. And I'm telling you right now, all over the planet, right now on Sunday mornings everywhere... People are being led into a false understanding of who God is. And I don't want to do that. It scares me to death to even think. As a matter of fact, I want to pray about that for a second. Lord, we love you today. And Lord, I would, I would ask that as we walk through and study uh, uh, your scriptures as, and, and really look at the scriptures that, that talk to us and speak to us about who you are, Lord, that it would be your words, not my words, that you would protect and that you would guard uh, what comes out, that you would guard the things that we speak about, um, Lord, as we walk through uh, this creed. Um, Lord, we lift you up, we lift this up to you in Jesus' name, amen. So look, this whole idea of the Trinity, y'all, it seems impossible to believe. And overly simplified, probably, it is that, that God is one, yet three. So the math makes no sense. If something is one, then it can't be three and vice versa. And you may argue, because I've had it said to me, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. Okay, it's not in the Bible. But I would tell you this, it is irrelevant whether the word Trinity is in the Bible or not because we come to the conclusion of the triune nature of our God. We come to the conclusion of the Trinity by trying to be faithful 
to the entirety of the scriptures. The Bible says there is only one God. And then the New Testament calls uh, not only the Father God, but also Jesus and the Holy Spirit God. The do- and I hate to use the word doctrine because it's such a churchy word, but it's the only thing I can use. The doctrine of, a, of the Trinity is an effort to allow all of those statements to kind of live together in harmony. And if we look at and we read and we study uh, what the scriptures teach, we can see that with pretty good, good clarity, with, with pretty good assurity that the scriptures teach both truths, that God is three and that God is one. And so we either hold true to the doctrine of the Trinity or we start whacking things out of the Bible. We start cherry picking and you see people doing that. So if we are not, you and I are not prepared to start cutting stuff out of the scriptures, how is it that we can understand the Trinity? The Old Testament emphasizes that there is only one true God and he alone is to be worshipped. God declared Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3 that you shall have no other gods before me. And then 40 years later, Moses, uh, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said, Hear, O Israel, starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And this idea, this oneness, is, 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 uh, is reinforced in the New Testament. There is no other God but one in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. In Ephesians chapter 4, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then in James in chapter 2, you believe that God is one, you do well. These Old Testament passages and these New Testament passages state clearly that there is one true God. And then we look at the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, it recognizes that Jesus as God, when he appears to his disciples after uh, his crucifixion and resurrection, and he reveals to Thomas the scars on his side and the scars on his hands, Tom, what did Thomas say to him? He said, my Lord and my God in John chapter 20. Earlier in that same gospel, uh, in John's gospel in chapter 8, verse 58, we learn that Jesus claimed deity for himself, that Jesus claimed to be God. He said in, in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That looks back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses is on the mountain, and he's saying to God, Who am I supposed to tell uh, these people? Who am I supposed to tell them that sent me? And so God says to him, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, God said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That is a clear claim to be God. Don't let people tell you, because it got told to me many times, well, Jesus himself never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, he did. This is a crystal clear example of that, this whole I am thing. The Jews that Jesus was speaking to in John 8, 58, they surely understood his claim to be God when he said, before Abraham was, I am. How do we know that? The very next verse says they tried to kill him for it. Because they took it as blasphemy, totally took it as blasphemy, his claim to be God. And then in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13, Jesus is called our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus is presented 
as God. And then the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, the Spirit is equated with God. Also, the Holy Spirit has some of the same attributes that we see. Omniscience in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Omnipresence, which means He's everywhere in Psalm 139. He participated in the creation of the world, if you look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, along with the Father and the Son. And then Matthew chapter 28 verse 19 links all three together in the Great Commission. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal members of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity is an essential doctrine. You cannot remain true to the teachings of Scripture and hold to any other position. And yes, it is a mystery. And that is a cop-out answer for many people, but I don't, it's one of the hardest things, at least for me personally, it's one of the, who wants to get up here and explain the Trinity? It is one of the hardest things to understand. And so, yes, it, there's some mystery in it. And yes, our finite minds are going to struggle when we try to understand and describe an infinite mind. But I can tell you this, it's not some big muddy mess to God. And in the day that comes that we will understand all things, it'll probably become clear to us. The doctrine of the Trinity says that the unity of the one God is complex. This drawing that is on the screen, this is what kind of began, and it's in your worship guide, it kind of made it make sense to me. A little bit, at least it began to, because here's what that little drawing says. It says the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Does that make sense? That, that I would hold on to that drawing because every time I would struggle with all of this, I would look at that little drawing and it helped it make sense to me. They are not three roles played by one person. That's an heresy, a heresy called modalism. They are not three gods in a cluster. That's a heresy called tritheism. We could go down this whole long laundry list of heresies that sprouted up in the first five, six, seven hundred years of the church. We don't have time to do all that today. Um, we'll do that another day. But here's what I think is at stake if we don't have an accurate picture of God. We probably won't think high, as highly as we should of Jesus and of the Holy Spirit. We will, in our mind, even if we don't want to, we'll set up some kind of hierarchy of the three persons of the Trinity. We may not understand uh, that we can have similar rich relationships with other people as we imitate and mimic God. Number three, we, we, we may very well not realize just how much God loves you and the crazy links that he has gone to in providing and making available salvation for you. So here we go. That was a long introduction to today. But we're going to look at the first statement in the creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So today we're going to talk about the first person of the Trinity, the Father. Y'all, we have a perfect Father, and I want to talk about Him today. And again, my words... It's just scary to me to, talk, to try to describe the Lord. That's all I'm going to say, so I have grace. But I will say this. Each person of the Trinity does have a role to play. 
God is not three roles, but each person of the Trinity has a role or roles to play. And I believe the role of the Father is threefold. Number one, he initiates relationships and he initiates plans. And number two, he provides for those that trust in him. And number three, he protects those that trust in him. In the very first line of the Bible, we see the Father's role in initiating. This is one of your little fill-in-the-blanks. Creation was the Father's idea. He set it in motion. He got the wheels rolling. He initiated it. It was his perfect plan. Genesis 1-1 is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First of all, if we don't believe in God as the creator, it makes it hard to believe everything that follows that. And guess what follows Genesis 1-1? The whole rest of the Bible. So the whole rest of the Bible is standing on the pillar of the very first verse. Second, the verse, first verse of Genesis tells us that before anything else existed, God was already in existence. He didn't come into existence after creation, but rather he existed prior to creation. And that's the next point the verse makes. Everything that is in existence is here because in the beginning there was God and God in his wisdom decided to create everything. The Apostles' Creed begins with a statement that is like literally almost word for word Genesis 1-1. But one of the differences there is, is the important insertion of the words, I believe. The Creed states, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And it is super important for me and you to recognize that if we have a biblical worldview. And so remember, I'm talking about looking at at life, looking at everything through the lens of Scripture. So if we maintain a biblical worldview, we are saying that we affirm or that we agree with what is technically called creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. That is the belief that God created everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. There was no matter. There was no time. There was no space. There was no nothing other than God. And that is hard to understand. It is just completely hard to understand. We want to put God inside of time. God created time. He transcends or is beyond time and space and matter. Every worldview tries to explain the origin of life. I'd love to go down that road too, but we can't do that. But if you and I confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, we're saying that we believe that we are here because a loving Father created us. In the beginning, God. God created everything out of nothing. There was no pre-existent matter that He used to, to work with. He created all of it. You are not here because of some spontaneous action, some spontaneous accident, some random chance junk. That is not why you are here. You're not here because some evolution that happened over millions and millions of years. That is not why you are here. You are here because your heavenly Father, in an act of love, spoke into being rocks and trees and nitrogen and oxygen and water and birds and every living thing and the moon and stars and the planets and you. That is why everything is here. The world exists because He wanted it to exist. 
And it exists because God the Father is almighty. El Shaddai is, the, is God almighty. He has the power to make this world and this universe and everything in it out of nothing simply by speaking the words, let there be. And then so there was. And so it was the Father that initiated and created that plan. And it was the Father from before time, it was the Father that initiated a plan and a desire to have an intimate relationship with you. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. And He chose you before the beginning of time. This God that hung the moon and the stars and all the planets up in the sky because He wanted them where He wanted them, that's the God that wants to have an intimate relationship with you. Second, Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said, Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And so here we see the second role of God the Father as a provider for His children. Then Philippians 4, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul's talking to the believers in, in Philippi. And he's telling them, just as they met all of Paul's needs, so the Father will meet all of our needs. God does this out of an abundance of his treasury. How do you and I draw from his unlimited resources? Only through Christ Jesus, verse 19 tells us. Only those of us who are in Christ have access to God's account and have the right to ask him to meet our needs. Even in what appears to be terrible terrible desperate circumstances the Lord provides for his children picture this scene Abraham it's Old Testament Genesis uh, uh, chapter 22 uh, Abraham is instructed by the Lord to sacrifice to take his son Isaac that they've been trying to have a kid for 80 years he's instructed to take Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him so Abraham takes him there and he sets up he's got his altar set up and he's ready to sacrifice his son, he literally has the knife up in the air ready to sacrifice his son. And at, the, and at the just the right time, shocker, that God jumps in at just the right time, an angel of the Lord calls to Abraham. And then in verse uh, 12 of Genesis 22, it says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then verse 13 and Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of this place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Have you ever heard that? Jehovah Jireh is the Lord that provides. Y'all, he is a good father and he wants to provide for his children. He loves providing for his children. He wants to provide for you. He is Jehovah Jireh. I heard a story about a man who wanted to take a cruise. Matter of fact, he took his first cruise. And he had wanted to do it for so long to take a cruise. And he, he didn't have a lot of money. He saved up his money, saved up his money to take this cruise. And it cost him every bit of money that he had. And so he packed himself 
uh, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because he knew that he wouldn't be able to afford the, the, the food on the cruise ship, and so he packed himself up a box of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It was a seven-day cruise to the Western Caribbean on Royal Caribbean Cruise Line, and so he planned on eating PB&Js the entire time, and so finally he goes to Tampa and he boards this, this cruise ship, and the ship leaves ports, leaves port, and he's crazy excited, even though he's going to eat the same meal, you know, day in and day out. And at first he was okay with the sandwiches. But after a while, he began to notice all this incredible food that was available to all these other passengers and people were gorging themselves on fillets and crab and chicken marsala and incredible roasted vegetables and every fruit known to man, soft serve ice cream and and the finest desserts. Y'all ever been on a cruise? The food is awesome. And he saw people getting room service with all of this stuff and he thought to himself, this is nuts. I'm sitting here with my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and these people are eating all of this incredible food. And one day he saw this steward coming down the hall with a big plate of food, uh, a room service, big plate of food. And the man asked the steward, how much does it cost me to get just a little meal? And the guy with the plate is staring at the man. And the man continued to explain he only had enough money for his ticket. But how much would it cost for him to try just a little small amount of that food? And so with disbelief, this steward tells this man, bruh, he said, The meals are all included with the price of the ticket. They're all included with the price of the ticket. You can have it all in the price of your ticket. And there are a lot of Christians today that are eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches wondering why they can't have a filet and lobster. They look around to other Christians that seem to be living victoriously or seem to be eating spiritual steak and potatoes and they wonder why all they got is a PB&J. What that man on the cruise ship didn't understand is what far too many Christians today don't understand, and that is the principle of grace. When Jesus died on that cross and he ran out of the tomb and he ascended to the Father, all the meals were included in the price of that ticket. All the help is in that ticket. All the provision is in that ticket. Everything you need was provided in that ticket. Leave the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches at home and take advantage of the provisions of God that are in that ticket. Jehovah Jireh provides for his own. Finally, the third role of the Father in the Trinity is is that of protector. That of protector. March 5th, 2016. I don't know if any of y'all have seen that picture before. Spring training game in Florida between the Braves and the Pirates three and a half years ago. Just another day at the ballpark. But look at that picture. Sean Cunningham is the dude with the sunglasses on the left. It's his arm shielding his son from a bat that flung into the stands. Guess what his son had been doing? Looking at his dumb telephone, right? You know, and they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but, but no picture is as rich as what that kid said after. The game, a reporter, because I don't know how they caught the picture, but a reporter uh, interviewed the father and the son after the game, and the kid said to the reporter, listen to how profound this is. The kid said, as long as I'm with my dad, I'm okay. As long as I'm with my daddy, I'm okay. And so if an earthly father's instinct to protect his children allows him in a second, right, in a second to get his arm up there to protect his son, How much more will the Heavenly Father protect me and you? 
how much more will the heavenly Father protect his children? Verse 1 of Psalm 91. It's the flagship statement of the Lord's protection over those that trust in him. Verse 1 reads this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. The Most High is El Yon. It's 53 times in the Old Testament that word is used. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, Shaddai. 48 times in the Old Testament referring to the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then the psalmist goes on in Psalm 91. It's an incredible psalm about the protection. And he describes uh, uh, God's protection. He describes, characterizes the Lord as a refuge, as a rock, as a shelter, as a dwelling place, as an avenger, and as the very source of salvation. Scripture is full of instances in which God protects his people. But it's always under the umbrella of his plan. It's always under the umbrella of his divine plan and his divine purposes. Exodus 14, verses 21 and 31. God fights for Israel, protects Israel as he splits the Red Sea, providing an escape for Israel as the Egyptians are coming behind them, chasing them. Though often stubborn... Israel is God's chosen vehicle for bringing forth the Messiah. So God protects them in the desert. In Joshua chapter 2, God rewards a fearful and repentant prostitute named Rahab for her faithfulness in hiding the, 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 the Israelite spies, the Hebrew spies. And he spares her, and he spares her family while all of the rest of Jericho dies. Well, reckon whose lineage Rahab is in, our Lord Jesus Christ. God protected Rahab through that. 1 Samuel chapter 7, the Lord notices that Israel's, Israel has become repentant. They're repenting from idol worship in 1 Samuel 7. And the Lord blesses them with victory and protection over the Philistines. He's a protector. He wants to provide and he wants to protect. So, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He made everything out of nothing. For His glory. And we glorify Him by obeying Him and by loving Him. And we do this because He breathed life into us. And He provides for us. And He protects us. And God loves and He takes care of us. Not only is He Almighty, but He is, as the Apostles' Creed states, God the Father Almighty. He's not just some far away, distant, uh, far removed source of power. He is your Abba father he is your daddy he wants you to climb up and sit in his lap and he wants to put his arm around you and he wants to call you his child and that plan was not implemented yesterday that plan was implemented before he even created time you were chosen before he even before there was anything such as time before there was matter before there was space before there was time that plan was instituted and so he is the loving father of all who believe. Look what John chapter 1 verse 12 says. But to all who did receive him, who is him? Him being Christ. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What John is saying there is those that believe him have a right to climb up into the father's lap. To have the father put his arm around you 
To have the Father say, I love you. To have the Father say, I have saved you. And you will be with me for eternity. That is what that verse says. And so if you have never received Him, if you have never asked Him to save you, let just let today be the day. And I know that there is surrender in that. And I know there is submission in that. And I know that there is pride that's got to be removed. Pride's got to be removed from that. Right? This is not uh, uh, just an, some intellectual decision. It's not just some intellectual conversation. It's a heart issue. And so if you've never done that, I'm asking you to consider to do that today. And it is, and while, while the, there is complexity in the Trinity, there is not, it doesn't take a Ph.D. to understand the gospel. Right? It is a simple formula. I repent of my sin. And that is just me turning away from it. It's just me turning away from that sin. And I believe that Christ died on that cross. If the Lord, if, if, the, if the Father is just, then your sin's got to be paid for. Right? All those animal sacrifices for all those years provided a temporary covering for that sin. His Son's death on that cross provided a permanent, permanent, totally permanent solution for the sin he put the sin as far as the east is from the west so I repent of, of my sin and I believe that, that that death on that cross took care of it for me that's it and so if that I want y'all to close your eyes bow your heads and if that is you today that you 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 want to say yes to that offer and you want to crawl up in the father's lap call him Abba father and have him, his arm put around you this is all it is Lord I do repent and I want you to say it along with me and if you want to come up and kneel at the cross, you can come up and kneel at the cross, or you can sit there in your seat uh, and just say it quietly. It makes no difference. It's not any realer if you're up here uh, uh, on your knees. But it is simply, Lord, I do repent of my sin. I do want to turn away from my sin. Lord, and I do believe that that death on that cross did pay the penalty to a just God that that death on that cross paid the penalty for it. And Lord, I invite you to live inside of me. I invite you to save me. And I want to say yes to your offer today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And look, if if that happened for you today, if you said yes, if God's been chasing you for 25 years, and today's the day that you submitted to that, that you surrendered to His Lordship, if that is today... I want you to grab one of those little connection cards on the seat back in front of you and just let us know because we want to pray for you. We are a praying people. Our prayer team is in the back. They want to pray with you. They want to talk with you if that's what you want. I would encourage you to go back there and let and just talk to them. Tell somebody. Tell me. Tell Susan. Whatever it is. But just let us know because we want to walk this journey along with you. We pray one more time and then I'm going to ask Richard to, to come up.